My name is David Kramer. I'm going to be moderating today's panel on understanding the fuzz, the muddled legal landscape regarding CBD. None of us chose that title, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're all here and ready to discuss the legalities surrounding CBD, which, as you'll soon hear, are uh, complicated, ever-changing, and uh, currently in a slight, slate of, a slight state of flux. Um, just a very brief intro about myself. Uh, I am at the law firm Vicente Cedarberg, which is a national firm focusing exclusively in the cannabis and hemp space. I regularly advise clients on a pretty wide range of uh, clients that are both plan-touching, ancillary, trade associations, governmental agencies, on everything cannabis and hemp-related. Uh, we have offices in Los Angeles, Denver, Boston, and Tallahassee most recently. And I personally spend a pretty substantial amount of my time uh, with hemp-related issues, both on the policy and transactional side. I'm delighted to be moderating a panel with uh, some excellent colleagues who I've gotten to know over the last couple of weeks. And uh, I'd like to just briefly introduce them and then let them introduce themselves more fully. I'll start with Heidi, who's here from uh, Seattle. Sitting next to her is Orion, who's also from Seattle. Then we have Will from Washington, DC and Michael right next to me from Los Angeles. Uh, starting from Heidi, if you can just tell the room a little bit more about yourself, please. Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Heidi Ernest. I'm an attorney primarily in litigation for Cultiva Law. We're based in Seattle, Washington. We also have offices in Oregon and Nevada, and we will also have offices here in California by the end of the year. However, our issues here are hemp-related, so they're federal issues, so we practice with those issues all across the country and even a little bit internationally, particularly with the involvement of Canada. Um, but so that's my background, and I'll be speaking to you a little bit, I think, about the changes in uh, the 2018 Farm Bill and some of the distinctions between the House and the Senate version and what we can see or hope for coming up here shortly. My name is Orion Inskip. Um, I'm also from Seattle, from Gleam Law, and we have offices also in uh, Washington, Oregon, and in uh, California right now. Uh, we, I, I focus on the government compliance side on, the, on mostly the regulated market in Washington. Um, because we had so many clients coming in about CBD, I've spent the last year getting up to sp speed on all the CBD issues because that's probably the larger growth market nationally and internationally. Um, yeah. uh, I'm William Garvin. I'm a shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. <coughs> That's an AMLAW 100 firm, uh, mostly located on the East Coast. I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, primarily, my focus is on issues related to the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, that's uh, usually what most of my clients are asking me for, but I'm also co-head of our cannabis group, and I'm also a member of the uh, American Herbal Products Association's Cannabis Committee. So I'm very familiar with the issues related to CBD and dietary supplements and FDA. My name is Michael Chernis. I am probably what you call an OG in cannabis law. I've been, uh, usually I guess like a laugh or a chuckle or something. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been in the cannabis space for 10 years, um, both on the defense side and on the compliance side, the collective side, and now more on the transactional side and the permitting and licensing side. I have a law firm in Santa Monica called Chernis Law Group. Um, and we have several clients that are very prominent in the hemp and CBD space, and we've done a lot of work through them in terms of getting up to speed on these issues. We recently uh, 
filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security on behalf of one of those clients based on seizures of hemp coming from out of the country. And uh, we're very much uh, invested and up to speed on all of the sort of nuanced issues about hemp and, and CBD and looking forward to sharing it with you today. Great. Thanks, everybody. So I just want to give a very brief outline on what we hope to cover today. And then at the end, we're going to leave some time for questions, obviously, if you guys have. And I'll personally stick around afterwards if you want to come up and ask more questions. I'm sure some of my colleagues will be around to do the same. Uh, we're going to start off today by talking about the Controlled Substances Act and where the CBD and hemp specifically fall in that statute. We're going to also talk about the DEA's position with regard to CBD and hemp. After that, we're going to move to the Farm Bill, the 2014 Farm Bill, which is the current law of the land as it relates to industrial hemp on a federal level. After that, we're going to move to California, which is where we are. And as you might all know, there's been some recent uh, developments that have been a little hairy. Uh, and after that, we will hear from our FDA expert on certain issues pertaining to how the FDA is regulating CBD and other hemp-related products. And finally, we're going to close with uh, pending legislation, the 2018 Farm Bill, and what that will mean for everyone in the room. So um, we're going to start, like I said, with the Controlled Substances Act, or the CSA. Uh, as many people in the room probably know, marijuana is considered a Schedule One substance, which means the DEA considers it to have no medical use and a high, a high potential for abuse. Um, if I could start with you, Orion, where does CBD fall within the CSA's definition of marijuana? So CBD itself isn't mentioned anywhere in the, in the definition. The definition, however, has what we call the, an exclusion for certain parts of the plant. So prior to the 2014 Farm Act, the only place you could get hemp was if you imported it from someplace that allowed it to be grown. So you had to import from outside of the United States. So that, that exclusion is where hemp, hemp oil, hemp extracts all came from up until the Farm Act was passed. So, uh, currently under the 2014 Farm Bill, a CBD uh, Schedule One substance? So that's a, an unanswered question right now. Um, according to the DEA, according to the FDA and the USDA, yes, they would say that CBD is still a Schedule One substance. Um, because it's not actually mentioned, uh, most of the time when we, when we counsel our clients, we, we actually fall under the Farm Act, which allows for industrial hemp pilot programs in states that have passed legislation to allow that to happen. And then you are allowed to grow hemp. And then anything that is derived from that hemp should also therefore be legal. So that's, that's where we are with, with the 2014 Farm Act. So we're going to come back to the Farm Bill in, in a little bit. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to just stick on the CSA because I think that's obviously a very uh, complicating statute uh, in this space. Uh, you mentioned a bit about the DEA's position and how the DEA views CBD, even though CBD is not explicitly mentioned as a Schedule I substance. Um, Michael, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about the, the DEA's position specifically with regard to the final extract rule and how that's evolved over the last year or two. Sure. So just to be clear, uh, when Orion's talking about the exclusion, the definition of marijuana in the Controlled Substances Act excludes uh, mature stalks and seeds that are incapable of germination. So if you were able, theoretically, to derive CBD from those excluded portions of the plant, that would definitely not be a Schedule One controlled substance in anyone's eyes. There's a tremendous debate about whether you can actually get any kind of uh, 
anything other than trace amounts of CBD from those portions of the plant, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Um, the DEA uh, came out, though, with a controversial rule in 2016 that actually was proposed in 2011. It's known as the DEA, the, the Marijuana Extraction Rule. And what it proposed to do, or at least what it suggested, was that it suggested that notwithstanding the exclusions that exist in the marijuana definition, and notwithstanding the fact that the Farm Act, which I'm, we're also going to talk about a lot more, which protects and excludes from the uh, CSA what is defined as hemp, the DEA extract rule suggested that all extracts from cannabis were, uh, were Schedule I controlled substances. And as a result of uh, a lot of pushback and ultimately a lawsuit, which in Hemp Industries Association number three, um, what was resolved more in the briefing on the issue, because they, ultimately they lost the case, but the briefing on the issue sort of clarified the DEA and the DOJ's position on this, which is the marijuana extract rule did not make anything illegal that was not already illegal. And the DEA and the DOJ clarified that, yes, if you can get CBD from the excluded portions of the plant, that would not be illegal under the CSA. But they also said, but you can't get anything from the excluded portions of the plant other than trace amounts. Um, they also clarified that the CSA does not trump, I hate to use that word, does not trump <laughs> the Farm Act. So the result of the extract rule is essentially, honestly, it's kind of a big nothing. It just, it just again perpetuates the DEA view that all of this is illegal and forces us as lawyers and as people in the industry to kind of get into the nuances of it and talk about things like the exclusion and part of the, the definition and now the Farm Act. But the, the net result, in my view, is that the DEA extract rule did not make anything illegal, does not make CBD illegal that was not otherwise illegal. So uh, Michael touched on a, a couple of points that I want to follow up on. Um, one would be the lawsuit that HIA filed um, in 20, well, the, the most recent iteration of that lawsuit. Before, I, before we get there, I just want to put a nice little bow tie on, on this part of the conversation, which is that currently, in the DEA's eyes, if you can get CBD from the exempted portion of the cannabis plant, that would not be a Schedule I substance. Of course, the DEA takes the position that that's impossible. And so, as Michael said, we're sort of stuck in this place where any CBD on the market, the DEA is treating as a Schedule I because, in their view, it's scientifically impossible to get it from the portion of the plant that wouldn't be a Schedule I. Um, if we can just return to, to the lawsuit, Orion, I know this is something that you, you're very close to. Can you just tell, uh, tell the room a little bit about uh, the HIA-3 and what that was about and what the net result was? And that'll be, I guess, a good bridge into the Farm Act as well. Farm sure, bill. sure. So I'll, I'll actually go back to HIA-1 and 2 as well. So the, the last, the most recent iteration, which was decided or disposed of, I don't, it wasn't really a decision, it's, it's an unpublished decision, um, was decided in, uh, in May. But the first two cases were the Hemp Industry Association brought a case against the DEA for making a rule without having going through the proper rulemaking procedures. So the first case was decided that the DA had made a rule that was it was not okay. So Ninth Circuit shut that rule down. 
the second case, HIA 2, um, the DEA, or the court then decided that the, the excluded parts of the plant, so marijuana um, exclusionary rule out of the CSA, so those excluded parts of the plant, the fact that there might be trace amounts of THC in those excluded parts of the plant did not make those excluded parts of the plant a controlled substance. So that's important because we can take that same logic and apply it to CBD, right? So if there's a trace amount of CBD in the, in the excluded part of the plant, it's not a controlled substance. Um, so as Michael said, there, they, DEA then passed a rule, and unfortunately this rulemaking started in 2007, um, so it came out before the Farm Act came out. So the rule wa was, was to add this marijuana ec extract to the Federal Code of Regulations. The D to be clear, the DEA doesn't actually have the authority to remove or to add things to the Controlled Substances Act. That's up to the Department of Justice. Now the DOJ has delegated that authority to go through the process, the procedure, but ultimately it is, it is the Attorney General that makes the decision on what would be added or removed from that controlled substances. So HIA 3 was a, a, the challenge of adding this rule 7350 to include extracts from any part of any plant or part of the plant of cannabis sativa instead of saying marijuana. I think we all would agree that, that using that language saying cannabis sativa as opposed to using marijuana with an H, which is what's in the Controlled Substances Act, um, was, was going outside of the DEA's authority to, to do. So at some point, I, I believe that rule could, could get challenged again. The case was actually decided on a procedural ground, which was that HIA had failed to challenge the rule during the rulemaking procedures, and so they didn't have standing to actually bring a, a case against the rule. So that's, that's how HIA was, was, dis, was disposed of and why it has no precedential authority. And really, that rule, it, the way that they briefed it and the way that it is now looked at and viewed, it really doesn't mean anything. As Michael said, it's, it's uh, anything that was legal prior to HIA 3 is legal now and before that rule. Thanks. So. Um, I did want to touch on one other case. There's a case, a white plume case, and, and to the question about whether or not you can grow hemp before the Farm Act in the United States, um, the reason why you had to import hemp was because the only, the only parts of the plant that were legal in the United States are the parts that are excluded from the rule in the, in the CSA. Well, one of the tribes, I think, in South Dakota, white plume tribe, attempted to grow, start growing hemp, and, and then would, could then extract hemp, whatever you wanted to have for hemp purposes, which would of course include CBD. Um, and the court decided in that case that because you can't have the plant without having the other parts of the plant, that you couldn't grow it even though it was hemp and, and for hemp purposes in the United States. So if you were gonna have the immature stocks as opposed to the mature stocks, then you're in violation and it's a controlled substance. So. That's, that's why it's, it took the Farm Act to allow um, industrial hemp pilot programs to exist. Which is a perfect segue to the next topic, um, the Farm Bill. So uh, if you think about federal legislation of industrial hemp and CBD specifically, the two pillars on a federal level are the CSA and the Farm Bill. We just covered the CSA, hopefully, with some clarity. And uh, now we'll move over to the Farm Bill. Um, Heidi or Michael, I don't know uh, which one of you would like to kick off this portion of the conversation, but maybe you can just tell the, little, the room a little bit about 
what the farm bill was designed to allow, and then we can go into some more nuances of it after that. Yeah, and actually, if I could just jump in really quickly, and I don't mind who takes that question, but one thing I did want to say about CBD and its characterization under the CSA is that, you know, Orion and Michael are correct that in 2016, the DEA stepped up with this joint statement with the FDA and WSDA, or USDA, saying that CBD was specifically prohibited and just really clarifying that. You know, they did release a new directive, I believe it was May 2018, and they were really kind of commenting on a lot of these changes that we'll be talking about later with the 2018 Farm Bill, but there was some indication that CBD extracted from seeds, uh, fibers, things like that, there was some indication that they wanted to remove that from being required to comply with the import-export bill, which is how you get the seeds over here in the first place. So that doesn't really do anything for us practically, but what it does signal, I would argue, is that the FDA is interested in possibly removing CBD, including CBD derived from non-sterile uh, seeds and other active sources. It looks like they are interested in possibly removing that from certain provisions of the CSA. So there is hope. I'll kick off the, the hemp, the uh, farm bill discussion. Sure. So um, in 2014, Congress as part of the comprehensive farm bill I included section 7606, uh, which for the first time created uh, what amounts to, at least in my view, um, an exclusion from the farm, from the CSA for something called industrial hemp. It effectively authorizes individual states and their departments of agriculture to create these things called pilot programs, whereby uh, those departments of agriculture, for purposes of research, could cultivate industrial hemp and could effectively outsource the cultivation to people they contract with to grow the industrial hemp. Uh, this bill, it, it, it's really important, I think, to, to note that the bill was shepherded by uh, Mitch McConnell, who had a, a real interest in helping Kentucky and perhaps some other states in the South that had lost a lot of economy and, and power from, that used to be powerful in the tobacco times, when, before tobacco soda took a hit, wanted to reinvigorate the farming uh, community down in those areas. So McConnell made this happen. And the, the key nuances which, you know, need to kind of need to be explored and talked about are this idea that you could only cultivate it through for purposes of uh, research and also how industrial hemp is defined. So industrial hemp is defined as having 0.3% of THC or less on a dry weight basis. So again, if you're if you're now in a state with a pilot program, you are able to cultivate industrial hemp, 0.3% of THC on a dry weight, basis, dry weight basis, for purposes of academic research. That's what the Farm Bill technically allows. But obviously, what we see out here, at least some of it, might not be considered <laughs> academic research. Or maybe, maybe I'm missing it. Um, but obviously from, well not obviously, but from that farm bill, from that narrow uh, language in the farm bill, 
you had a big opening of a door. And through that opening, here we are. And then there's some, obviously some nuances that I guess we're going to get into in terms of derivatives and transport across state lines. Yeah, but that's, that's a great overview. Um, the, the other thing to add is that the statute is clear that research includes market research. And uh, that's important because many clients, including maybe people here, I'm not going to surmise, use that as a hook for the commercialization of CBD and other hemp-derived products. Um, if I can ask, maybe Heidi, um, what is your understanding of the extent to which private growers can participate under the Farm Bill? Well, there's really kind of two layers to that answer. Um, I would say under the existing Farm Bill, uh, you know, the DEA did come out in 2016 kind of clarifying some things, and I think there was an understanding that as Michael explained, there is a certain amount of contracting that can be done between private parties and research institutions or universities. And I have some data written down here, but I think uh, I'll find these numbers. But there was only a handful of universities, around 30, and over 1,000 licenses. So obviously, individuals are contracting and performing these services and doing these kinds of things. So there is some indication that this is permitted under the law. Now. The second layer of that question is, are people actually doing this and are they actually getting in trouble? And the answer is, on a very limited basis, I would say generally no, they're not getting in a lot of trouble for this kind of thing. And we'll get into kind of these underpinnings of the Farm Bill that actually gives it its teeth, which is a lot of the funding provisions. And you'll see that when these funding provisions prohibit federal and sometimes state actors from enforcing any sort of law that contravenes the Farm Bill, they're not allowed to do that. So once you don't have money to do it, you can't do it anymore. So yes, there is some you know, indication that per the black letter law, this is allowed. And then functionally, it just has been allowed because they're not allowed to enforce it. So on, on the question of uh, enforcement and commercialization, a question that I get all the time, and I'm sure my colleagues do too, is the transportation of CBD across state lines. Um, Michael or Heidi again, or, or Orion, uh, whoever wants to chime in on that, uh, maybe if, with respect to the Appropriations Act and also the Statement of Principles, and explain to the room what that means, please. Yeah, I'll, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, just a second. On, on the, well, there's, a, there's an act called the Anti-Deficiency Act. The Anti-Deficiency Act prohibits the use of federal funds in a way that Congress didn't appropriate it for. So any federal agency or state agency that takes federal money and doesn't use it for the specific authorization that Congress gave them to use it for, it, it runs the risk of not just losing that funding, but also there's actual criminal provisions um, in the, in the Anti-Deficiency Act. It's important to know that because that's right now, I, I mean, I call it the punchline about CBD. The only thing that is preventing the FDA and the DEA from doing what they have indicated they would like to do, which is to do enforcement actions, is the prohibition on the use of funds in the Continuing Appropriations Act. <laughs> So the, the Congress has continued, every, every time they renew the, the, the budget, they have to renew this provision, but they have prohibited the use of federal funds in any way to interfere with the trafficking, sale, or use of industrial hemp, but from that then it's, it's derivatives, which would be CBD. So you can traffic it across state lines, and it, it specifically says either within the state where the industrial hemp was grown or in any other state. So you can take it then to all 55 jurisdictions, 
um, under this prohibition on the use of funds. But that's a real thin shield to have. So when you're, when you're talking about the risks here, um, if Congress one day decides not to renew that provision and that falls out, then the, the, they're letting those dogs off those leashes and the FDA, DEA will be able to come in and, and do enforcement action. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would add to that. I mean, that, that pretty much covers it, but the, you, know, you ask a bunch of lawyers the same question, they're going to give you a bunch of different answers. You ask a bunch of federal agencies the same question, they'll give you a bunch of different answers. So notwithstanding the fact that the rider to the appropriations bill that Orion mentioned was passed in 2014, or was it? The first time, and then it's been reviewed each time, yeah. So notwithstanding that, in, in, um, in December, I guess it was, in, or in, two, in August of 2016, the DOJ, the DEA, and the FDA all came out and said just the opposite. You can't transport um, industrial hemp crumb through a pilot program across state lines. They also made it very clear that you can't grow it or manufacture or produce products commercially. But I, I, you know, my view is that because the, the farm bill, the, the farm bill takes all of this industrial hemp that's grown through a pilot program outside of the enforcement under the CSA, which is to say it's not subject to the CSA, my view is that transporting it across state lines is not a crime and you don't need any additional protection for that. The rider makes it clear that you're protected, at least until the rider goes away. But again, um, and in fact, we're going to talk in a minute about the fact that this whole farm bill is about to expire next week, including the rider. Um, that's a good little teaser for, I think, what Heidi's going to be talking about. <laughs> yeah, and, sorry. No, please. One of the things I wanted to mention, too, that kind of highlights some changes of what we might see in the future is that right now, under the 2014 Farm Bill, states are required to opt into these agricultural programs by establishing these licenses and these processes. There's some debate over whether or not the 2018 bill has that same opt-in requirement. There's actual language that says nothing in this act shall prohibit the cultivation in states where plans have not been approved by the federal government. So right now, a lot of these interstate transportation laws are based on the fact that states have to opt in, and if you try to move it across or to a state that is not opted in, you're making an illegal transfer. But once this 2018 bill is passed, if states are not required to opt in, which is what this language saying that no laws, nothing is being prohibited, that's what it's kind of signaling to us, then we might see some of these transportation distinctions collapse. And like I just said earlier, with the characterization of CBD under the CSA, we did get that May 2018 directive from the FDA saying that they would like to or they would be willing to remove CBD derived from active seeds and fibers and things like that to remove that from the export-import requirements under the CSA. Now, that's different. That only implies to the importation of seeds from abroad. But if we're talking about transportation as a whole, what we're seeing is some of these distinctions breaking down. And that's, we'll get to the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, no, no, it's a great, it's a really important, uh, it's probably one of the key distinctions between the 2014 Farm Bill and the regulations promulgated under it is transporting across state lines, but for this appropriations measure is a risk. And so 
I think everyone on this panel would, would agree that the safest approach is to really only transport products among and between states that are Farm Bill compliant. Now, fortunately, I think by last count, it's about 40 states are Farm Bill compliant. About seven or eight of the, of the others are not, don't have any program at all. And then two, including California, because it's California, has its own version of a program that is not Farm Bill compliant yet, another teaser, and we'll talk about that too. Uh, again, I told you that the landscape is shifting quite actively. It's like a volcano. Um, but before we get to all of that, I want to just say one last point about enforcement. Uh, Heidi touched upon it. Um, in your guys' experience, uh, what type of enforcement have you seen, if any, with regard to products that are grown in compliance with uh, a Farm Bill compliant program? That would be a state that has an agricultural pilot program that complies with the Farm Bill. I personally have seen nothing, especially here in California. I've, I've heard anecdotally uh, about enforcement in places like Texas, where they go into uh, stores selling CBD and maybe they'll test it to see if it's really industrial hemp. And, but um, I have no firsthand knowledge of anyone being enforced against for hemp products that are derived from, um, that are compliant with the Farm Bill. I'd add that there was a case in Kentucky where the, the state government came in and shut down a bunch of, of stores that were carrying hemp-derived CBD. Um, they seized all their product, but they actually gave it all back, and those, those stores were allowed to go back into operation. Um, the, the biggest, I, th I think what we're talking about, the enforcement, really, it's, it's more at the federal level that we're, we're concerned. And the, the only enforcement that I've seen is letters from the FDA, yeah. which, which, you know, We'll, we'll talk about the FDA stuff, but those those infor those letters are threats. But but my opinion is that they are toothless threats as long as we have the Appropriation Act. Will maybe you've been waiting so patiently. <laughs> maybe you, maybe you can chime in on some of those letters really quickly. Yeah, and so the stats on the, the so for FDA the the major enforcement action. I, I don't know if they've done any import alerts or any detentions or seizures at the border. Um, but obviously they've issued a number of warning letters. The warning letters all tend to say the same sort of stuff. They issued six in 2015, eight in 2016, four in 2017, I believe one this year, all related to CBD. And uh, those warning letters typically have a, uh, a pattern to them, which they typically talk about both the claims that are being made about the product as well then as, as sort of at the end, they sort of just generally talk about CBD and its regulatory status. And so those are uh, primarily how FDA has been enforcing in this area. And it should be noted that warning letters are not official agency action. These are um, legally, they are just sort of an informal statement by the agency. So if you wanted to sue FDA and you said, hey, I got this warning letter, I think it's unfair, I think it's legally incorrect, and you took them to court, the, the judge would toss the case saying, the agency didn't do anything. All they did was write you a letter which had no binding effect and didn't do anything. And it wasn't final agency action, so it cannot be reviewed. So FDA is regulating the area in a very light touch, and yet they continue to sort of say the same sort of stuff, although the warning letters have been in decline if you noted that we only have, I think, one this year. Was that the July letter yes. to sign signature? Yes. Okay. David, can I just clarify one sure. thing? I, I started out in my intro by, by talking about a lawsuit that I filed on behalf of a client importing industrial hemp. That client has had product plant material seized at different borders, but 
and we've succeeded in some instances in getting some of it released, but the, the distinction, just so no one's confused, no, no hemp that's grown, no hemp product that's grown or cultivated or processed outside this country can be compliant with the Farm Bill because it's not grown pursuant to a pilot program. So just so everybody's clear about that. That's a really important qualifier. The Farm Bill is only about U.S. cultivated hemp, and it's only about hemp that's cultivated pursuant to a, a pilot program. Yeah, so we've had, we've had you know, certif certificates of this is industrial hemp certified in Europe, in Spain, whatever, all the bells and whistles. It's meaningless from a compliance with Farm Bill perspective. There's other arguments that can be made to try to get that material released, and we'll see how successful we are, but it can't be Farm Bill compliant. Sorry for talking over you. No, no, please. So um, I want to really quickly talk about California. We're unsurprisingly a little behind schedule, um, and I want to make sure we have room to talk about the FDA issues and the 2018 Farm Bill. On California, and I'm happy to stick around after if people have particular questions, um, I mentioned before that there is not currently a, a California's hemp program is not currently compliant with the Farm Bill. Fortunately, that should, knock on wood, change maybe even this week. Uh, SB 1409 is a bill that has cleared the State Assembly and Senate. It's on Governor Brown's desk right now. Among other changes, SB 1409 would make California's program Farm Bill compliant. Uh, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have an update this week. Uh, that aside, whether it passes or not, I want to just talk for a few moments what's allowed in California currently and what would be allowed under SB 14092. Uh, Michael, I don't want to hear my, myself talk. I'm the moderator. If you can just share a little bit about the legality of cultivating hemp right now in California, who's doing it and, and pursuant uh, to what rules? I'll, be, I'll try to be quick about it. So. Uh, Technically, there is no uh, authorization to legally commercially grow industrial hemp in California right now. So what ALMA did, what Proposition 64 did, is it redefined what cannabis is, it redefined what marijuana is, and it split the two. So there's cannabis, and then there's industrial hemp, and the industrial hemp definition in Prop 64 in ALMA is the same, more or less, as it is in the Farm Act. It's 0.3% of THC or less. That's industrial hemp. That is not considered cannabis, so it's not subject to the same licensing um, and permitting process that cannabis is subject to, let alone the same criminal penalties that cannabis is subject to. But all the Farm Bill, I'm sorry, all Proposition 64 did is it clarified the distinction between the two, but it didn't create any program for getting a permit or a license to grow it legally. So what we're left with is a bill that was um, passed in 2013 that created a registration process for people to grow uh, industrial hemp, but never got anywhere. So the state of play right now is that there's a law in place um, and it authorizes people to get re to register with their Department of Agriculture, their County Department of Agriculture, to grow industrial hemp through this hemp program that was started in 2013. But there's no mechanism in the state to register right now. There's no registration window. There's no registration process. So at least in my view, 
until SB 1409 passes, there won't be a way to grow uh, industrial hemp legally because there's no way to register legally unless you can somehow persuade your county to give you permission in one way or another. But even if they did that, you wouldn't necessarily have the same protections that you would as if you were doing it in a state authorized way. Does that answer it? Yeah. And I just want to clarify one point, which is what Michael is saying is spot on about private grows. You have to register, but there's no registration process. We're hearing that's going to change shortly. We've been hearing it's going to change all year. I'm not really holding my breath on that one. But what we're waiting for would be regulations and a process through which private growers and manufacturers, processors, distributors can actually register. Um, and we're working on that a little bit uh, at my firm on the policy side. Uh, what you can do in California as far as grow right now is if you're an established agricultural research institution, you can grow. And what you're seeing on the ground is a lot of private growers, similar to the farm bill that are teaming up with research, uh, is people are hooking on to these established agricultural inst uh, research institutions. And in the, just the last couple of weeks, I've heard of many stories in, in various counties in California where the uh, county commissioners are coming in, looking at the grows, checking for paperwork to see a link between the grow and the research institution, and they've been signing off on it. Again, that is not the same type of protection we'd all want. That is not something I think people feel extremely comfortable about, but it is at least a start, and hopefully we'll get some more momentum towards the latter half of this year so that the registration process that Michael spoke about will open up and private growers will be able to do, will be able to do this. Um, the second part I wanted to talk to you about today about California is the uh, CDPH memo or bulletin that came out in uh, July, which I'm sure uh, gave some people in this room some angst. Michael, can you chime in a little yeah. bit about that, please? And, and, and just to also go back to SB 1409, what 1409 does is two things that are, I mean, it does a bunch of things, but the most important things are number one, it gives the Department of Agriculture and Calif Food and Ag in California permission to create a pilot program. But number two, it also implements the registration process for commercial industrial hemp growing. So again, as David said, this is, this is shifting landscape in California. Um, so what the, what the CDPH, the California Department of Public Health did in, in July, which sort of caught a, caught a lot of people by surprise, is they issued a bulletin that drew a, a hard line in the sand in saying, you cannot use CBD as a food additive, period. Um, they essentially adopted, and we're sort of foreshadowing for a, a bit here what Will is going to be talking about when he explains the FDA position, and, and I don't want to try to do that, but effectively the FDA takes the position that CBD is a drug and cannot be, um, cannot be used, among other things, as a food additive or as a supplement. So the, the California Department of Health said, we're adopting that position. They're all, I mean, there's obviously a lot of hypocrisy because when it comes to cannabis products and edibles, the, they're all over the place. And it's ironic now that the cannabis is more legal than the non-cannabis product. But I mean, it's a real shift. But the California Department of Health says, yeah, we, it's OK to put CBD as use CBD as a food additive in edibles because we're regulating that. 
but we're not regulating the other piece of this. We're not regulating the hemp stuff yet. I mean, my view of this, and, and so they drew a firm line and said, you can't do it. It's prohibited. It's illegal. Uh, my own view is that, and I, I'm sure other people have their view what prompted it. I think, I think CBD products are so pervasive out there. I mean, I live in Venice, Santa Monica, and you can buy a shot of CBD to put in your coffee and anything in all kinds of commercial, whole foods, places like that. I think California became uncomfortable with the fact that there's so many CBD products out there and there was no testing protocol as there is for cannabis. But that's my own view. But right now, as it stands, in no uncertain terms, you cannot have a CBD product in food in California and sell it. And even if you are using hemp from a pilot program state, deriving the CBD from that hemp and putting it in your food, still, according to the California Department of Health, that too is illegal. So any edible that you see in California that contains CBD, that's not a cannabis product through a track and trace protocol, that is illegal, period, end of sentence. And tinctures are included with that, they're food? I'll let Will talk about the nuances of like what tinctures are, but I, my, my own sense is, yeah. That would be something that you're consuming. Yeah, generally it's ingestible products, I think, is the line that people draw. Uh, but we'll take questions at the end as far, and I'm happy to stick around, as is Michael, I hope, to, to yeah. talk about what products are covered. Um, obviously, enforcement to date has been sparse to non-existent. I personally have not heard of anything on a state level as far as CBD uh, derived from hemp and, and any sort of issues with that, and it's still at Whole Foods and your you know, garden variety of shops. Um, I want to I move on because we're running low on time, and we have Will all the way from Washington, D.C. here to talk about <laughs> FDA issues because if you're not confused enough between the CSA, the Farm Bill, and the patchwork yeah. of state laws that we have, uh, you might get confused in just a moment. Um, the Federal Food, and Drug, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, or the FFDCA, governs all types of consumable products, including uh, products containing CBD. Um, and I want to I hear from Will on, on a variety of issues. First, how does the FFDCA apply to hemp products broadly? And then maybe you can go systematically into food and dietary yep. supplements as well. Sure. So uh, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, as, uh, as he said, uh, regulates foods, medical devices, drugs, dietary supplements, medical foods, um, and requires various things from each of those product category classes. When you're dealing with FDA, it's important to remember that FDA has little regulatory boxes it puts things in, and that's the only way things get regulated, and you, you have to fall in within one of those boxes. If you're going to be consumed, ingested um, as a product, then you're probably going to be regulated by FDA, or if you claim any sort of wellness or health or curing or mitigating a disease, you're going to be regulated by FDA, and then you've got to fit into one of those little boxes. Uh, as for the question of whether a tincture would, uh, would qualify as a food or not, uh, well, the big thing in FDA law is often you are what you claim. If you claim you're a drug, then we're going to regulate you as a drug. If you claim you're a food, we're going to regulate you as a food. If you claim you're a dietary supplement, we're going to regulate that way. In addition, if you make certain claims about your product, if you say, hey, this product uh, prevents Alzheimer's, well, that is a disease claim. We're going to regulate you as a drug. So part of that you are what you claim is also how are you talking about the product, right? What claims are you making about it? Dietary supplements get to make structure function claims, uh, drugs get to make disease claims, and foods are very limited and usually make sort of nutritive claims. 
So uh, with respect to food, what is the FDA's position uh, with regard to CBD? And when I talk CBD, I'm talking hemp-derived CBD. Yep. I'm not talking about cannabis, just to be clear. What's the FDA's position there? So FDA's position is that CBD cannot fit either as a food additive or food ingredient, nor as a uh, new dietary ingredient in a dietary supplement uh, for two different provisions that are very similar, which basically say if a pharmaceutical company got to the ingredient first and got either an approval from a new drug application or got it into an investigational new drug application that was used for clinical investigations and it was public, then it cannot be as used as an ingredient either in a food or cannot qualify as a dietary ingredient in a dietary supplement. The reason that was created uh, was ideally they didn't want pharmaceutical companies, uh, their research to essentially be cannibalized by food companies and dietary supplement companies with, with once they saw that something was effective or they, 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 if a pharmaceutical company said, hey, we think this is really good at something, they don't want to see like a dietary supplement go out there and then basically commercialize it right away and kill off the research. So the, 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 the very, you know, <laughs> to argue on their side, it would be, You'll, you won't get any research dollars flowing into this if essentially the minute you start launching a clinical trial, you can basically sell it for free, right? No one's going to ever want to do go through the high cost of whatever, half of a billion dollars to bring a drug product to market if essentially it can be cannibalized right at the beginning by a food company or a dietary supplement company. So that's the position of CBD for FDA. Uh, and that's what they say in their warning letters is this cannot exist under the law for FDA as a food ingredient or a dietary supplement ingredient because of these provisions. And it should be noted, these are statutory provisions. So these aren't regulations that FDA can change. This is in the statute itself, so only Congress can change those provisions. So if I understand you correctly, because there was at some point a clinical trial or a new drug application with, that contains CBD, yep. we can't have food or a dietary supplement that contains CBD. But there are exceptions to that rule, right? Or there's at least one exception. There's certain exceptions under both the food and the dietary supplement side, but my understanding is I don't, I don't, I don't think currently CBD sits, fits with any of those exceptions. Was there one you were thinking about? In well, general? I don't know. Uh, yeah, the exception about if it existed as a food product prior to the drug application. Oh, yeah. So, so I know I, it whoever got there first, right? So if it was in, if, if uh, obviously hemp seed oil has been a dietary supplement for a long period of time, if there was a certain amount of CBD that was naturally found in hemp seed oil, let's say it was like whatever, 5%, and you could go back and say, listen, hemp seed oil always had 5%, then that would be something you could always continue to sell because that would be under DSHEA, that would be sort of grandfathered in to say like, okay, we all agree, the con what does hemp seed oil con contain? Contains 5% CBD. Uh, an interesting case was there was one company that at one point found out there was a cholesterol-lowering drug called Lovastatin that was also found in red yeast rice. And they wanted to sell a dietary supplement, but they really wanted to up the lovastatin in it to have a pharmaceutical effect. And so that's what they did. They really beefed up the lovastatin within it, but they still claimed they were just selling red yeast rice. But when you analyzed it, it had large amounts of lovastatin in it. What FDA said is, you're not selling red yeast rice. You're selling lovastatin. And that is against the law because that's not, you can have this level of lovastatin that's normally found in red yeast rice, but you can't beef it up. So that would be the essential same point for CBD. If there's a certain like, amount that was normally found in hemp seed oil, you should be okay. But if you're beefing it up beyond that point, FDA will say, we see what you're doing. You're really trying to sell CBD. Um, and you can't, you can't you know, trick us that way by basically beefing it up and then just calling it just hemp seed oil. 
Is, is there anything that any, any people in the room or industry stakeholders can do to sort of establish that CBD was a food product prior to the initiation of clinical trials? Sure, you can, I mean, you could uh, research and just see what was on the market. I, I have a feeling that uh, FDA is probably right on this. I think there's, there's probably a level at which there was CBD within some stuff, but I got a feeling it's at trace levels that is not what the consumer class wants. And so even if you were to go back and say, hey, CBD was in uh, hemp seed oil and, and you got about like 1%. That's great, but I don't think what, that's what the consumer class wants. And so you're still going to have this fundamental problem that what the consumer class wants is they want CBD and you're being confined by FDA from basically giving it to them. More, more good news. <laughs> so we spoke about foods. We spoke about dietary supplements. And I apologize that we're rushing a bit. We have a very important topic from Heidi at the end too. Uh, before we get there, Will, can you also add very quickly about uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, yeah. the approval there, and what that what you see that meaning for CBD as a whole? Sure. So GW uh, GW Pharmaceuticals recently got Epidiolex approved. Epidiolex is the first uh, drug product that is derived from uh, cannabis botanically. FDA normally doesn't like botanically derived anything because it's very hard to characterize, right? It's hard to make consistently, but this was, uh, GW Labs did the hard work and showed that this was uh, safe and effective for treating treatment of seizure disorders, right? So that just got approved. As a result, now it's going into the descheduling phase. So it's been re uh, referred to DEA. DEA has 90 days, and I believe that's up this Sunday. So we should find out this Monday, essentially, or Sunday, what DEA is going to, how they're going to classify Epidiolex. Uh, that'll be very interesting. My guess uh, how that's going to turn out is F DEA is just going to focus very narrowly on Epidiolex and also on the cannabis strains that they have, uh, their proprietary cannabis strains specifically on Epidiolex. And so they'll probably, the rumor is, I think somebody from Morgan Stanley said they're going to probably declassify it or deschedule it down to Schedule 4 because it has a low potential for abuse. And probably then, in order to create that product, they'll have to deschedule GW's specific strain of cannabis so that they can issue manufacturing quotas to GW to manufacture that specific product. Uh, but that being said, I don't think DEA is going to try and go out and reschedule all CBD or reschedule all marijuana because DEA probably doesn't want to do that. That's a big problem to tackle. If you've also seen in the past, DEA actually uh, there's a synthetic THC product called Marinol, right? And THC is, uh, you know, the euphoric effect for marijuana. That got descheduled, but they didn't want to deschedule all THC, nor did they want to deschedule marijuana. They just did it for synthetic Marinol. So they've been down this path before, and they do it in a very narrow context usually. That also supports the typical situation for DEA. DEA does not like cannabis. Nobody got promoted at DEA for being a big cannabis booster. So... You know, they are just, they're, they're an institution that doesn't really want to go the way that the public's going. And so to the extent that they can only cross a narrow bridge and just carve out Epidiolex and their strain, that would be my guess, but we're going to find out Monday. Great. Last one for you. We spoke about foods. We spoke about dietary supplements, drugs. What about topicals and other cosmetic products? Where do you, where do you see uh, the legality of that pursuant to the FDA? So for uh, cosmetic and topicals, it's important to note that, you know, dietary supplements are things that are consumed orally. You can't have any topical dietary supplement because that's just not how the regs are written. 
you can't have cosmetic products. Those are also regulated by FDA. But if you have a cosmetic, that shouldn't be systemically absorbed. So you shouldn't be getting some major pharmaceutical effect from your cosmetic, because if you do, what that is is a topical drug. Um, for So there's been a variety of hemp products that are classically cosmetic products, and they're still legal. And if the CBD is locked up or the THC is locked up and it's basically not systemic, uh, we've already... That's already been found to say, okay, that's an okay cosmetic. really can't be abused. It's not really pharmaceutically active. It's not really doing anything. Obviously, the consumer doesn't want that, but that's the sort of cosmetic and topical that easily passes sort of DEA and FDA, something where the, the chemicals except are locked up and can't be gotten to, um, even though if they're present in certain trace levels or certain levels. Great. I'd like to hear more from everybody on this panel, but just we'll move, we'll move on to the 2018 Farm Act uh, really quickly. 2018 Farm Bill. Um, Heidi, if you can uh, just shed a little bit of light on what the stat, well, let's start with the ways in which the 2018 Farm Bill deviates from the 2014 Farm Bill, um, some of the key provisions, and then lastly, sort of where it is currently and its likelihood of, of passing. And I'll turn it over to you for that. Okay, great. Um, well, before I talk about changes, let me talk about just briefly going off what Will said, what doesn't change. Um, there are some things in the law that require congressional action. One of those things is the approval process for new food, drugs, and cosmetics. That does not change under the 2018 proposal. So while there might be some progression here, you don't actually see any actual changes in adding new products to the market. So that's what doesn't change. But um, I do want to talk about some things that do change that might be relevant to some people in this room. Um, I think the first and most primary one is that the bill, as passed by the Senate, um, there's still some debate in the House, it amends the CSA. It's Section 102, if anyone wants to go look at it, and it will exclude industrial hemp. Now, it won't exclude CBD. It won't exclude any sort of product derived from industrial hemp. Uh, that We'll probably see another litigation that looked just like HIA 3 um, about that type of issue. But we will see an actual change in the black letter law, which is always a huge, huge movement forward. Um, the second thing is that the actual enforcement activities will be vested more in the states than the federal government. And I'll get into why that is in just a little bit, but one of the big things that that does is it opens up tribal lands to be able to grow cannabis. Um, the other small thing I wanted to mention was that federal crop insurance, uh, other you know, government benefit programs to sustain your lands, uh, things that are important to actual farmers. Uh, the, the cannabis growers will be able to opt into a lot of those programs should the Senate version go through. Now, one of the things that I, oh, the last small thing that I wanted to mention is that I'm going to get into this area of the plans and who will be permitted under the 2018 bill to get involved with cannabis. But one of the big, big distinctions is that anyone who has a felony drug-related conviction will not be able to play ball. And so that will disproportionately affect our lower socioeconomic classes, our people of color, and I'm personally uh, passionate about that, and I know we need to wrap up, so come see me at the booth if you have any interest in talking about that. Uh, but the last thing that I really did want to mention was who can participate in this program. Right now, we kind of have this false distinction that it has to be for research, uh, which I would argue includes market research as well. But what would happen under the new bill is they would collapse that distinction. And states, just like California is going through now, would have to have federally approved plans that these participants would opt into. And that's how the vestation of the power gets moved from the federal government to the state. So now the states will be responsible to the federal government for having these compliant plans 
that now individual actors can come and participate in without this false paperwork from a university saying that you're working for them. So while it does open it up to a lot more players, it does exclude people on a racial and socioeconomic basis, which I would argue has been happening with respect to farming in the US throughout our entire history. Um, and then the last thing I really wanted to talk about, I think I just said that, but the very last thing is the likelihood of this passing. I got it, I swear. Um, the likelihood of this passing is we see a lot of bipartisan support here, but you guys know how the politics work. There's gives and takes. People use things as uh, you know, different poker chips. And so what we're seeing in the new uh, omnibus bill, which is what the Farm Act is, is we're seeing restrictions on SNAP, which is you know, federal food assistance for low-income people. If we see this fail, the actual cannabis additions, I think it's going to be because the cannabis is going to be used as a pawn to get some additional funding for SNAP. Um, to kind of go against a lot of the proposals that have been made. And I swear to God, 10 more seconds, the only thing I want to say is, this already happened in Canada. So in 1994, they allowed research licenses for hemp. Four years later, they allowed commercial licenses and collapsed these distinctions, just like we're about to do. In 2016, they made a class exemption for CBD, and it blew up the market. They have over 140 acres of hemp now, compared to our 25. And as you guys know, we just legalized cannabis on a national basis up there. So if we're talking that kind of timeline, we're maybe looking four more years out for pure commercialization and maybe 10 years from today on seeing more of a federal legislation for the entire cannabis plant.